Welcome to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined, and dedicated to silencing the chatter about what women should and shouldn't be doing as they age. Here to bring you stories about women in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, women who are leading inspiring lives that make a difference to themselves and others, are Catherine Marino and Gail Zalitsky. Hi, I'm Catherine. And I'm Gail, and we are the active voice of Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Welcome to our weekly podcast. Our mission is to showcase vital women between the ages of 70 to 100 plus who shatter the myth that we become irrelevant as we age. These women lead fulfilling lives for themselves and others. Visit our website, womenover70.com. Invite us to conduct workshops or speak to your organization on issues that matter to women aging. Consider becoming a sponsor. And if you are an author with a book about women, check out our book promotion opportunity. And today we're very happy to be talking with Mary Lou Eldred. During her journey to age 81, Mary Lou Eldred has crossed many borders from a tiny town in Iowa to the convent for 10 years to New York University, where she earned a PhD, to marriage at age 33 and motherhood at age 36, to top-level leadership positions in higher education and philanthropy. Mary Lou's leadership positions have always been in Catholic institutions. For example, she was president of St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana, and president of Catholic Community Foundation in St. Paul, Minnesota. Volunteering has always been her way of life, including civic, charitable, and church work. She's been on boards of directors and boards of trustees for a dozen institutions and organizations. And Mary Lou is now writing a memoir about her extraordinary life. And I've known Mary Lou for nearly 45 years as a colleague at the University of Minnesota in the 1970s and as a treasured friend ever since. So welcome, Mary Lou, to Women Over 70. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Now, Mary Lou, you let's start with the, the, the here and now. You're in the process of, of writing your memoir, and I know you're in the early stages of that, but why now, and uh, who's your audience? Well, why now? Because I have the time, um, and it's been kind of ruminating in the back of my mind for years that at some point I'd like to do that, and I've read memoirs of many people, uh, mainly women. Um, and I'm always so inspired by them, what they've done, what they've accomplished, and then what it seems to me they're offering to other women younger than themselves. So that was probably the main motivation. Um, it was also a way for, or is also a way for me to reflect kind of on back on my life. Um, I suppose being in the convent, I was taught about the importance of self-reflection. And um, I really believe in that and believe that we can not only learn more about ourselves, but probably giving give a gift of some kind to some other woman younger than mm-hmm. ourselves um, yeah, as that's... she navigates this crazy world in which we live. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So those are the reasons why and who is it for? You know, I don't know who it's for. It's for my family at first. Um, and your friends. And my friends, right. <laughs> um I have no illusions that it'll be a wonderful publication or anything. And I don't even know if I'll seek to have it published. Uh Um, I'm just, you know, really in the very early stages. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, I think it's a wonderful thing to be, be doing. And your story, your life story is certainly interesting. 
as I just get, gave some highlights in the introduction. And, you know, as I noted in the introduction, you, you have crossed many borders and you've been a, a trailblazer in many ways. And, you know, we're just really interested in what has, what has prompted some of these major life decisions and, and changes that you've made over the years. And we could just start with your growing up in a town in Iowa, up 500 people or so. Um, well, uh, uh, thank you for, you know, calling me a trailblazer. I never in one of a million years would think of myself in that way, but anyway, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I'll accept it, I guess. Um, well, yes, I did grow up in a small farm town in central Iowa, 500 people in our town, counting the dogs, probably, <laughs> uh, 500 individuals, I should say. Um, it was a very idyllic experience, as I reflect back on it. It was during the late 40s and 1950s when, you know, many parts of the world were much calmer than they have been in the decades since then. Um, I grew up in a family with one brother and two very active and loving parents. Um, who were very involved in the community in many different ways. My dad had a, a small construction business um, as his full-time work uh, from very early morning to often late at night in the summer when it was light out and warm enough to do projects. Uh, my mother was a stay-at-home mom raising her two children whom she doted on, um, perhaps more than we enjoyed at some point in our lives. Um, but they both were uh, wonderful volunteers um, my dad was mayor of the town for many years. He started the Lions Club in the state of Iowa and was very active in that up until he died. Uh, he was involved in the church in the Knights of Columbus, if you're familiar with that phrase. Um, he was on the school board and chaired the school board at one point. Um, it seemed like when there was an issue in the town that needed some consultation or needed a, somebody to lead a force of some kind, they would turn to Denny Denbo, my dad's name. Mm -hmm. My mother, um, in her very quiet way, being a very uh, staunch Irish Catholic, was also a volunteer. Much of her volunteering centered around the church. Um, she was active in, you know, the women's organizations there, always present for the funeral lunches after someone died, um, cleaned the church once a month with some other ladies, which was done in those years. Um, and was involved in, in a few civic things. She, she was a poll judge at every election that I could remember uh, with her democratic roots and my dad kind of, uh, you know, countering her vote with his Republican mm -hmm. vote. And many uh, dinner table conversations between the two of them where my brother and I would be moving our heads back and forth as they <laughs> deliberated some major issue. Interesting. So that was what growing up was like. Um, we also had... Uh, during the summer, I went to a Catholic school. There was only a pu one public grade school in town. But during Saturdays during the school year and uh, for a few weeks in the summer, uh, um, a few nuns from Cedar Rapids, the closest town, came out to teach us catechism and, and you know, Catholic doctrine. I was so taken with the nuns. I think initially it was the habits, which were pretty interesting to observe and then comment on as, as kids. Um, but as I grew older, I really admired their serenity, their sense of themselves, their spirituality, their desire to give uh, to others in any way possible. And kind of in my own, you know, adolescent and, and uh, even pre-adolescent way, thought that maybe that was, 
be some kind of life that I would like mm-hmm. to lead. Mm-hmm. And at one point, I talked to one of the nuns about it. And of course, they were. She was very encouraging. You know, they were always looking for vocations. Sure. Um, but I continued to meet with her when as often as I was able, and uh, really had decided, believe it or not, I think in about sixth grade that I would go into the convent after high school. Wow. Um, when I finally told my parents this, when I suppose maybe in my sophomore or junior year in high school, they. Uh, I, w- I was thinking that to say appalled. They weren't appalled. They were somewhat surprised. Um, and I, my mother immediately thought this was probably the best thing that could happen to her, and it would be a sure ticket to heaven for her, uh, to have a daughter who's a nun. My dad was not at all happy. He had grown up uh, the son of one of uh, nine sons of a Southern Methodist minister uh, who lived, had led a very strict life in their home. Um, they instead of referring to their father as dad or daddy or father, they always addressed him as Reverend Denbo. Um, it, you can imagine just that much about what kind of a life it was in that family. And um, part of their beliefs, I think, was that Catholics were evil. You know, it, this kind of funny stuff they did at mass in a foreign language and uh, all the vestments that the priests wore, and then not to mention the nuns in their outlandish garb. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was very opposed to it and uh, really insisted that I go to college at least one year, mm. which I did, and then entered the convent after my freshman year in college. Uh, re- really not changing my desire to enter religious life. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thought that perhaps I could, you know, help people or do help something or other uh, by leading my life in that manner. Mm-hmm. So you were in the convent for uh, 10 years. Right. And then, um, so if you want to tell us a little bit about life in the convent, that would be they're very interesting. And I'm also interested in then what prompted you to leave. Yeah. Yes. Well, it, uh, to tell it about it now, it sometimes makes me wonder if I really did it. Um, it so after my freshman year at Clark College in Dubuque, Iowa, then I signed up to join the convent there, their mother house. Um, is also in Dubuque, so it was just across town, actually. Um, so uh, the summer before I actually went into the convent, about June of that summer, I guess, I received a list of um, required items to bring with me, and it was a list of the clothing that we that we were to order from some place in Chicago that outfitted nuns. And I'm sure they were making a mint at that time. <laughs> So this was 1959. Mm. So um, we were asked to buy a certain kind of black shoes with ties and a small low heel. Um, uh, Ordered uh, two black skirts, I believe, and two black blouses and um, a belt that went around our waist. And the undergarments consisted of, uh, I think, three bras, uh, five men's white T-shirts with a round neck. And a, a, a black uh, half slip, and then black cotton hose that were held up with a garter belt in those years. Oh, yeah, garter belt. So this, right. this is maybe a little more than you want to know. But anyway. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, you know, just learning how to get dressed in the morning was a feat. I mean, that, that took, you know, a few weeks to you know, get into all of this, especially the white t shirt was, you know, something that we laughed at with each other, but really were appalled that this was part of our garb. 
Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, in early in the first six months, we had nothing, no headgear at all. Uh, then, uh, and uh, so in February then of 1960, I was admitted as a novice, which is uh, the, the um, first six months for what they call it, the postulant stage. And so mm-hmm. it's kind of like you're in, you're checking things out and they're checking you out to see if this is really going to work, if this relationship is is something that can be vital and um, helpful to the community and helpful to the person, you know, the woman doing it. And then in February of 1960, uh, we, there's a major, major ceremony um, where you become a novice. And at that point, you, you know, discard the black garbs that we'd worn, black, the outfit that we'd worn and get a whole new outfit, which is mostly made of wool, um, mm-hmm. imported wool from France. And that was worn 12 months of the year, rain mm. or shine, hot or cold. And you mm. just about thought you were going to die in the summer hot in Iowa heat with that. And that's when you, we were given the headgear. And that was interesting. It consisted of a, um, well, first we, our heads were shaved um, mm. down to just almost nothing, uh, which actually made the headgear much more comfortable. I can't imagine putting that on over a head full of hair. Um, so we were given a kind of a white net cap that we put on first, and that was held in the back with a, a straight pin. That was a little tricky putting that on because you had to be sure the straight, straight pin didn't spend the day stuck in your neck someplace. <laughs> um, then there was a um, a white kind of a cap thing that went over that, and that was also pinned in the back, and the same situation prevailed with the straight pin. And then we were given a white veil. Um, that went just over your head and that was pinned on the sides next uh, side of our neck, kind of adjacent to this thing around our neck. And then the last thing was the, um, it's too bad we're not seeing this. I'm kind of describing it with my hands here as I'm talking. Um, (laughs) The last thing was a a very stiff piece of thing that was uh, kind of went up and around your head, but stood up about six inches above the top of your head. And it was uh, starched extremely mm. heavily. You could hardly bend it, but we had to bend it to mar- bend it to form to our face, and that covered up your ears and your forehead, uh, and went uh, under your chin. And mm. so, if someone looked at you, all they saw was your really your face, no other part of your head at all. And so, is that what you wore then for the next nine and a half years? A version of that, yes. I wore that for two years or for one year as a novice, and then a year later, after that, we became what were called senior novices, and we made our first vows at that point. Mm. The vows were taken for one year, poverty, chastity, and obedience. And uh, prior to that, we had many, many uh, lectures and discussions about what each of the vows meant and what it required and what we were, quote, giving up by taking these vows, giving up in the secular world, that is. Um, can I just interrupt? I just for a moment here. I I'm just thinking about you know since I've known you so long and in your really high level leadership positions, obedience is not something that I attribute to you. So was that a? Well, did you have any trouble with that one? You know, Catherine, I didn't because um, I believed so strongly in what I was doing and that mm-hmm. I was really called by God to this mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that can sound kind of coordinated people, but that really is the essence of what it means, I think, to uh, join a religious community or be ordained as a priest or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. You really feel this calling that, you know, God is really asking you to 
do this to be perhaps a more intimate part of the church mm-hmm. and then to minister to other people. And in our case, we were um, a teaching order. And so, you know, that's where I got into the, the field of education. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you um, you went to, to New York University. Yes. You went well, from Iowa to New York. No, uh, I went... Well, I, after I made my first vows, I was sent to St. Louis to teach in oh. a girls' high school. Okay. And I was there for three years um, and had a, a mother, the superior of the, um, of the convent, was always you know, an older woman who would perhaps exemplify herself in some way that she was being selected to be a superior. I had the misfortune of having a superior who really had some severe mental health issues oh, no. and um, made my life extremely difficult. Um, my job every morning was to clean her room, her bedroom, her office, and her bathroom. And inevitably, I'd be summoned sometime during the school day over the school microphone to come to her office and being chastised for not uh, emptying the wastebasket or not dusting the bureau the way she wanted it done. Or So imagine I'm trying to teach a class to high school freshman girls and then being called to this woman's office to be chastised for my lack of, you know, cleanliness in her room. It was really humiliating in many ways. Um, And that, uh, so I was there for three years and then I um, was sent basically, you know, you were given a letter that told you where your next assignment would be. Mm -hmm. And it was then that I was sent to Mundelein College in Chicago and uh, as assistant to the academic dean and the, uh, difference between being Mundelein and St. Louis was like day and night. The woman I worked for was probably the woman I most emulate and admire of all the women I've met in my life. Mm-hmm. She was just incredible. And um, she really kind of put me onto the fact that, you know, maybe I should think of doing something more than teaching high school, that she thought there was something there that was a spark for working with college women. Mundelein mm-hmm. was, a, was a women's college. Mm-hmm. And it was owned by the order. And I loved my work there. It was just fantastic. But during the second year that I was there, um, she received just, you know, the typical advertisements that you get in administration. And this one was for um, a national defense education grant that was being given for um, people to study at New York University um, in the field of student personnel services or administration, whatever it was called. And so, uh, fortunately, I received this grant, uh, which paid tuition, room, and board, and gave us a living stipend. Mm. And that was just, you know, it was quite amazing for me to even think of get, being selected for something like that. There were 25 of us in the, in the group, and that was a 12-month program. So then, at the end of that, I, had my, I received my master's degree and went back to, to Mundelein. But in the process of um, studying in New York, um, the 25 in our group were, you know, from all over the country, mainly the Midwest and East Coast. I think we had one person from California, but, you know, there were ca- very few Catholics, mostly Jewish, and then many, many Protestant denominations. And they loved to talk about religion with me um, in terms of, you know, how, what made me decide to do this. By then, oh, and by then we were not wearing the habit anymore. We were wearing mm-hmm. regular clothes. So that was much, much better. Um, although my hair was still very short, it hadn't grown out quite yet. Um, so in, in talking to these people to try to explain why this life was 
important and really uh, felt like it should be my life, I began to think a lot about um, the future. Uh, so I was probably 26 or so, 27 then. Um, and thinking down the road, you know, 40 years, 50 years, is this the way I want to live my life until I die? Mm -hmm. And well, I lo really loved every bit of it. I began to realize that I could do much of the same work that I was doing and still be married and have a family. Uh -huh. And um, I lived with a woman in New York. We shared an apartment. We became very good friends and we're still extremely close friends. Her name was Susan. And um, she uh, claimed she was an atheist and badgered me with questions constantly <laughs> about both the Catholic Church and then my life in it. And, um, you know, she likes to take credit for my deciding to leave, but I can't quite give her all. <laughs> um, but it, it helped me come to that decision, I think. So yeah, that's so and then, um, so you did, you did marry, mm -hmm. and, and you did have a have a child. Mm -hmm. So what, what would give a couple highlights there about your dear husband, Don and your <laughs> daughter, Sarah? <laughs> My dear husband, Don, is probably the best thing that ever happened to me, um, <laughs> aside from your friendship, Kathy. Um, we met at, uh, Don is an identical twin, and he was a priest when I met him. He, uh, I met him at the wedding of his twin brother and a woman from my class in the convent who had met when they were teaching in the same high school in Iowa City, Iowa, and fell in love. So Mar Ron was leaving the priesthood and marrying Pat, my good friend, and Father Don was officiating at the marriage. So, you know, that was, it was a small wedding. So I, you know, kind of met everybody there and I knew many members of Pat's family quite well. Met Don's parents and uh, he and I struck up a conversation over lunch or dinner, whatever meal it was we were having. And uh, just, you know, talked about kind of our lives, what we were doing. And I thought, oh, he's a really nice priest, you know, they're lucky to have him. And so um, about a year later, in my mailbox in New York was a letter from uh, Davenport, Iowa, where I knew Don was uh, serving in a, he was uh, teaching at St. Ambrose College there and also uh, ministering at Sunday Mass uh, at a parish. So I get the, got this letter from him saying, you know, uh, we met at Ron's wedding and I am considering leaving the priesthood. In fact, I'm very certain I'm leaving the priesthood and I'm interested in being married. And are you attached to anyone? <laughs> Let's not waste any time. Right. Well, we were, you know, approaching <laughs> 30 by then, so. <laughs> so um I was quite mystified by that, but intrigued as well. And uh, then called his brother and talked to him and Ron assured me that in fact Don was leaving and was very interested in the same kind of life as his twin brother was leading. Mm -hmm. So over correspondence and getting together when we could, um we he decided to leave the priesthood, and by then I had I had already left the convent. I had made uh -huh. my decision prior to that. So we got married in a very small wedding in our Chicago apartment. We couldn't find a priest in Chicago who would marry us. There was a lot of um, disdain, some amount of disdain, for men and women leaving religious life to get I married, see. especially uh -huh. if we were marrying another religious, because it's like two leaving the, you know, the church yeah. one. Yeah. Um, so th then after that, um, it's, oh, th so then when we were married, um, Don had a job. He had gotten a job at a 
uh, a company uh, in in Chicago, and in, in a training program, which was wonderful. It was in a computer training program, and that was great. And so, um, actually, by then I had finished my PhD in New York, answering the questions from my cohorts and so forth. I think I'm getting ahead of myself here. Um, but anyway, I could not find a job in Chicago despite my newly minted PhD. Um, so I ended up working for an, an oil company in their HR department and realized after being there a couple of months and being given absolutely nothing to do, mm. that I was a quota. They were cited by the federal government for not hiring women. Oh. And so, you know, I suppose my resume looked good. I had a PhD and, you know, had done a few things. So I spent a year, well, about 10 months really being bored to death in that office. But, you know, I got paid fairly well. And we had no money, of course, when we got married. So, you know, I stuck it out. And then uh, during that year, we decided we wanted to move to Minnesota to be near, near Ron and Pat. And so I started looking for jobs in Minneapolis and St. Paul. And lo and behold, came upon this ad for University Without Walls. And Catherine, you know the story of that much better than I do. <laughs> um, anyway, I was hired there by the former, the man who was director at that time, his name was Jeff. Um, it, but uh, I learned quickly that he was leaving the, the directorship. I guess he was doing something else. I'm not even, don't recall what it was. And we were getting a new director who was a woman. And I was, I thought, oh, this is fantastic. So um, I was told the day she was, coming to for her first day in the office and um i happened to be walking i I parked my car and i happened to be walking into toward the building when i said i felt behind me this motorcycle or (laughs) motor scooter coming up the uh sidewalk so i moved over to let it pass and this person stopped and said would you be mary lou eldred heavens this is my first day on the minnesota campus how do they know me already well it turned out it was Catherine marino who was becoming the new director. And as I observed her with her helmet and her scooter and her boots, I thought, this is really going to be an interesting place to work. Oh, I'm glad we're interviewing you, Mary Lou. (laughs) So Mary Lou, (laughs) well, Mary Lou was a godsend to to University Without Walls, I'll say that. I want to, in the interest of time, I really want to kind of jump to your, you became president of a women's college. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm so, sorry, I think I'm talking way too much. No, this is it's fascinating, fascinating background. I, I, I do want to have you talk a little bit about you being a leader, and you've been a, a leader for many, many years in different you know, capacities, but as a as president of, of St. Mary's College, and then, um, t- so t- tell us about how you saw, how you would describe yourself as a leader in, especially leader in Catholic institutions? Um, well, I ended up in Catholic institutions because that's what I knew best. And that's where my role models were. Um, I had many women role models that I met and worked for and with in the Catholic institutions in which I worked. Um, first one being St. Catherine's College in St. Paul, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was there for three or four years, I think. That was after finishing my time at University Without Walls. Um, and I kind of expanded my core, my circle of women leaders there, did a lot of observing. Um, I just found it interesting 
how despite you know so much of the country was led by men that in the education and nonprofit world there were many women leaders and you know we could spend another hour talking about the conclusions of that and why that seemed to be true mm -hmm. um, but I was very enamored by the women I I saw as leaders and wanted to emulate them in some way if I could and what I saw about them is the women leaders I most admired were those who empowered others to be and do their best in whatever job they had. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that the leader had to take the, all the glory and honor to herself, but she wanted to be sure that those who worked for and with her were doing their best, and she was interested in helping them reach that level of, you know, being as good as possible, um, and uh, then helping them move on to the next thing, next chapter of their life. I also saw in the women leaders with whom I worked a vision for their role in the organization and how they would like that vision to become part of the reality of moving the organization forward. Um, and starting with you, Catherine, in our work together at UWW. But then I, when, and actually University Without Walls is the only non-Catholic institution in which I've worked. Um, so from uh, St. Catherine's, I did start after, well, I was there 18 years, and after about 12 to 15, I thought I really would like a, a different setting and um, a different kind of job and thought, you know, I may start looking for presidencies. And, you know, I didn't really want anybody to know that. I thought they'd laugh me out of town. Mm -hmm. um, of course, I had to confide in a couple of people because I needed references, which, you know, I did. Um, and... Uh, applied for a few, mostly in Minnesota and the upper Midwest, because we were, you know, really going to settle here. Um, had several interviews, nothing materialized, but usually got fairly good feedback from the interview and often followed up with, you know, what was missing in my portfolio uh, that, you know, eliminated me from being considered for this job. And I found everybody so willing to talk further. And that was one thing I said to myself as a as I began interviewing people for jobs in the organ my organizations, that I really was so happy to follow up with anybody to help them, you know, chart their path for the mm. next job it was going to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I loved becoming a mentor to other young women. And um, that's been part of my life, including right now, I'm still mentoring two young women in the Twin Cities who, you know, have had job changes and you know kind of sad things happen in their personal lives and mm -hmm. um uh, i just i appreciate the gift that they're giving to me to be able to do that for them yeah it's nicely nicely said you um you retired from um saint from, i'm sorry from saint mary's college mm -hmm. as president and as i recall you announced that you were you were retiring that was and true. then <laughs> Then what happened? Well, We've got a couple minutes left, so okay. I want to came back uh, to hear about your present work. Okay. Came back to Minnesota and was contacted by a board member of the Catholic Community Foundation that they were looking for a new president. And, um, you know, because we had lived in St. Paul really all of our life, except my short stint in South Bend, Indiana, you know, I knew a lot of people. And I guess I must have been known by a lot of people here, too, it's in the world, the Catholic world especially. And so the... Catholic Community Foundation sounded intriguing. I'd never heard of it until I was approached by um, Karen, this woman with whom I spoke. And 
one thing led to another and I was hired there as president. It was not, you know, it's a foundation. It's not an educational organization. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a, a different challenge. Um, and one that I really enjoyed ended up staying there for eight years before I retired, as you said, for the second time. <laughs> and, um, Retiring, re being retired is great, but I'd go crazy if I didn't have something to do. And so I've um, served on many local boards here of, you know, small nonprofit organizations, um, but mostly have done work for the archdiocese. Um, and I've somehow, about 10 years ago, kind of was stumbling into this work to help um, Catholic parishes do strategic planning in terms of how they see the future of their parish. Um, in terms of just the demographics of their parish are changing. Um, younger people are not finding religion very satisfactory anymore. Um, membership is declining. Their uh, contributions are decreasing. And many have uh, church buildings that are old and need a lot of deferred maintenance. Um, so I, with a committee, I chair a committee that goes, in, goes into these parishes and meets with the pastor and the trustees and some of the parish leadership and kind of takes them through a process of how they can think about their future. And if they're willing to merge with another parish, if they are determined to stand on their own, which is the hardest thing to do for many of us, for us to do, our committee to do, to, you know, there, many our parishes just will not pull away from, you know, that one thing and that's remaining separate from everybody else even though the handwriting is on the wall. So I probably spend, um, oh, the most 10 hours a week on the, this project. Mm -hmm. But it involves a lot of, you know, driving to parishes all over the 12 county metropolitan area. So it's, you know, on the road a lot and uh, meeting with people, writing reports, often, sometimes not often, I should say, occasionally meeting with the archbishop to go through all the recommendations that we've made. Mm -hmm. um, Although there's a priest at the, the head office of the archdiocese that is really my liaison that I work with very closely. Sounds so, fascinating. It also sounds like the uh, yeah, it has a it probably has a real emotional component to it. Mm, oh, these are hard, hard decisions for them to be making. It does, and I think sometimes it helps them to have an outsider come in and you know present the the situation maybe in a little different way than they're seeing it. Um, it's yeah, it's it's it can be. We've had some really amazing, amazingly challenging meetings. You know, a pastor yelling at us and telling us to leave the yeah. premises, and lay oh people walking out as we're trying to you know talk to them. But that's those are exceptions. I mean, mm -hmm. mostly the I mean the pastors especially are very grateful for the help yeah. that we're giving them, and um, you know parishioners they'll either come around or choose to go to another parish. It's kind of mm -hmm. what, that happens to most of them, I guess. Uh, it seems like it's really drawing on, on so many of your skill sets. Um, but so, Gail, do you have any any questions as we as we wrap up? No, I'm just fascinated by <laughs> the story, Mary Lou, your life. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And inspired and impressed. You know, I re I listened to a few podcasts of women you worked with, interviewed previously. And as I did, I thought, why on earth are they asking me to do this? There are some wonderful stories of the women you've talked to. And I really admire the work you're doing for that. Thank you. That's what Thank they're going to say about you. <laughs>
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we really appreciate uh, your spend taking time to talk with us, Mary Lou. It's just, there's so much more that we could cover, I know, and um, just really appreciate your candidness and educating us on a lot of different things. So um, we want to thank you very much for your conversation with us. You are most welcome. My last comment would be, you asked about advice for women of younger generations. Yes. Uh -huh. I, I have two pieces of advice. Follow your heart and combine your dreams with reality. Mm. That's yeah, great. that second one is uh, <laughs> challenging. <laughs> it is, indeed. <laughs> well, thanks so much. And listeners, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Become an active participant in our Women Over 70 Aging Reimagined Facebook group. Visit our website, womenover70.com, and discover everything you'd like to know about our Women Over 70 community. See you next Wednesday on Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. Thank you for listening to Women Over 70, Aging Reimagined. If you like what you've heard today, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen. In what ways are you shattering the myths that women over 70 are no longer relevant or visible? How are you celebrating aging? Join with us. Make your voice heard. Find us at womenover70.com.